This message comes from PagerDuty. In a world of digital everything, teams need PagerDuty, a digital operations management platform that helps you stay on top of urgent, mission-critical work and keep digital services always on. Learn more at pagerduty.com. EWN. Be with you in two seconds, okay? The faulty traffic lights at AZ okay. Berman and Morganstair Road in Mitchell's Plain at Govan and Berkey and Hanover Park Avenue at Stock and Sheffield in Philippi, as well as at Lavers Drive and 35th Avenue, that's in Bishop Lavers. On ktalk.co.za On the app On DSTV Back. Channel 885 And across the Ready? city on 7am Join the conversation This is Cape Talk This is Cape Talk 29 minutes to 10 o'clock. It is that time of a Friday morning where we welcome Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. We take all sorts of scientific questions on 021-446-0567. Drop me that WhatsApp or a voice note, 0725671567. Remember, Dr. Chris Smith cannot answer your personal medical questions you have to go to your doctor your clinic your physician to get that diagnosed but anything else fair game dr chris smith good morning how are you doing this friday uh, we should clarify that further shouldn't we anything else science technology or medicine if you ask me about accountancy or legal practices <laughs> I'm, I'm not terribly good on that. i'll have a go but i'm not terribly good on that now i'm fine thanks how are well, you the- there is the science of economics isn't well that, that's true i mean economics is largely your psychology People people do what they do and invest their resources in what they do for the reasons they do because of the way that they think and the way we think both as individuals and as populations. And, and economists really are experts in how people think and are likely to respond to different stimuli. It's so, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, essentially, it's essentially an extension of psychology. But Well, well then let's start there. When we talk about the principle, the philosophy, the mathematics, the science between Moneyball which is this process, this, this theory of using statistics and cold hard data to win at sports or to win in finance. How does that work? Well, um, obviously there is, there is uh, a degree of science and objectivity to something like sport because people who are good performers are con- uh, generally are consistently good performers and you can take in various factors that might influence those performances. You can also look at how teams are playing, you can look at team dynamics, you can look at uh, whether or not there are good and bad people in, in a particular team environment. All these things d- direct you towards whether or not a person's likely, you can never say for sure what the odds are, but likely mm. to have a good or a bad outcome. And, and that's what the bookies are really good at when you lay bets on mm. games or bets on events or bets on things happening. It's all probability. It's it's, it's essentially maths, and maths is driven by a lot of data. So mm. you can never be 100% sure on these things, but you can really make very good bets um, by basically learning a lot about the form or the statistics of, of how whatever it is you're betting on tends to perform under whatever circumstances. Well, those are my questions for the week. Brian's calling in from Somerset West. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Lester. Good morning, Chris. Hi, Brian. Uh, hi there. My question is... Um, the rotary Wankel engine seemed to be such a good idea when it was first mooted. Um, with energy going around in one direction, as, a com- as opposed to the normal combustion engines where the pistons have to stop, uh, stop, and so on. 
Can you explain what happened? Why wasn't it followed through? What was was inherent fault with the idea? I listen on the radio. Thanks, Brian. How, how bizarre, Brian, because I was thinking about this literally just the other day. And I was thinking, I wonder why these rotary engines never really took off. I mean, there will be engineers listening to this program who will t- know and give a much better answer than I can. So ha- hopefully one of them can give us a ring now and tell us really why they did not really take off. Um, the, just for people not in the know, the way that the engines in the average car uh, that, that you see driving down the road work is that there is a series of cylinders, and in those cylinders are pistons, which are a bit like the plungers in syringes. And the depending on whether you're talking about a petrol or diesel engine, the broad pr- principle is the same. You inject a fuel into the cylinder alongside some air, and the fuel burns, and when the fuel burns, it heats up the air, and the hot air expands, and the expanding hot air does work by pushing the piston down. That uh, piston movement is extracted into a crankshaft and uh, makes the wheels go around. And then the piston goes back up to the top, pushing out the, the uh, dead air and the exhaust gases and refilling the cylinder with fresh air, and the whole cycle repeats again. Mm-hmm. A rotary engine, rather than having a piston that went up and down like that, and you had to convert an up and down motion, which is what Brian's saying, into a rotary motion, rotary engines had a, a piston that was effectively three lobes that rotates in a cylinder, and as the uh, lobe goes round, it gets the fuel at one point of the rotation, Uh, ignites the fuel in another point of the rotation and then uh, having extracted the energy throws the exhaust gases away on another part of the rotation. I can only think that uh, the cost of construction, the cost of maintenance, the reliability and the development were just not there to make these a reliable and uh, reasonable and efficient and effective prospect. So really it never took off. But as I say, I suspect there are engineers listening to this who know a lot more than me about why this particular design of engine was not found to, to perform or deliver and really has never been taken forward. Well, well, Chris, Vincent has called and he seems to know why the rotary engine didn't take off. Good morning, Vincent. Hi, good morning. Hi, Vincent. Um, I was a young lad in uh, Johannesburg, and a friend of my father's was actually developing a Wankel engine or rotary. And the main reason it didn't take off was because they used a heck of a lot of fuel. And the price of petrol, as we know, in the 70s skyrocketed, and it just wasn't economical anymore. Does that make sense, Chris? Yeah, I mean, my point was it must have been on economic grounds. Um in the old days, we used to build engines that were hopelessly uneconomical. There are people who come to uh, celebrate the old cars in the area, to, to the village where I live, and they bring cars from the sort of 1901, 1910 era to that. And some of them have the most enormous engines, bigger than the engine in my tractor. <laughs> and they they burn off fuel. that they, they do sort of gallons to the mile rather than the other way around. And the, the, the engines of today are really very, very good. We've optimised them and made them extremely efficient. It may be that uh, Wankel rotary engines weren't given enough optimization in order to get the fuel demands down. I mean, you know, what I'm saying is that with research and development, you can make processes much more efficient, but perhaps at that time there was enough of a disincentive and the other solutions were regarded as good enough that people just developed them. But, uh, you know, if anyone else can join Vincent and tell us why this is the case, do do please do so. Excellent. Barris calling in from Blober. Good morning, Barris. Morning, Chris. Morning, Lester. Uh, just a question. We've often heard that, you know, the higher you go above, uh, above sea level, that the air becomes thinner and helicopters struggle to fly in the air. Now, always amazes me, what is it about that air that's different if we can't mm. see it? 
And lastly, if I had to go below sea level in these deep mines, is the air then denser or thicker mm. in the opposite direction as well? Hi, Barris. The answer is that at sea level, so you're walking around at, at sea level, you have got the height of the atmosphere in air above you. And because air weighs something, it's made of something, it's got molecules and atoms in it, and they all have mass, and the more of them there are, the more they must weigh, the air at sea level is therefore under pressure with 100 kilometres of atmosphere above it before we get to the Kerman line, which is roughly where we say space starts. So therefore you've got all that mass pushing down on you, and we call that one atmosphere. As you go upwards in the atmosphere, there's less atmosphere above you and therefore there's less mass above you pushing down on you and therefore the pressure drops. And the reason that a helicopter can't fly the higher you go is the way a helicopter flies is that the blades spinning round are effectively picking up a mass of air and throwing it downwards. And if you push down on something, it pushes down back on you as hard as you pushed it down so the helicopter to stay afloat in the air has to push more than its own weight downwards so it gets a bigger push than its own weight upwards so it can rise and as you go higher because the blades are sweeping out the same volume of air but the amount of air molecules in the air is lower because the density is lower because they're less pressed together because there's less weight of air above you, then the amount of air that you actually throw downwards with each sweep of your propeller blades is actually lower. So if you're throwing less weight downwards, you can support less weight. So eventually the helicopter gets to a point where it can't rise any higher because it physically can't spin fast enough to push enough air downwards to give itself a push upwards. And that's what causes the threshold maximum height at which it can fly. Same with, with jet engines. There's, there's a limit on how high they can fly because eventually they'll get to a point where there's not enough oxygen going through the engine in the air to power the engine and they're just not throwing enough air out the back of the engine with the fan blades to create enough thrust to keep them moving forwards at an appreciable speed. So that's why there's a, there's a, a threshold height. And indeed, as you go down underground, as you add height you are adding more pressure above yourself, you're adding more, more molecules above yourself, so there's more pressure where you are because there's a bigger weight pushing down on you. And if you take this to an extreme, if you uh, go underwater, the weight of water means that you end up, for every 10 metres you go underwater, because water's much denser and heavier than the atmosphere is, that's equivalent to a whole atmosphere of Earth above you for every 10 metres. So if you go underwater... 10 meters you've now got the equivalent of two atmospheres of pressure on you and if you're breathing with scuba equipment that means you're breathing air that's twice as dense as the air you're breathing at the surface and if you go 20 meters underwater you're now at three atmospheres pressure you're breathing breathing air three times as dense and that means that every breath has got three times as many molecules in it and it's three times thicker and actually as you go deeper and deeper if you ask a deep sea diver they will tell you you can feel that the air you're breathing is thicker in inverted commas mm. to the extent that when they're doing really really specialist really deep dives they will actually start to substitute much lighter less dense gases like helium into the mixture rather than heavier nitrogen because that actually makes the uh, effect a bit less pronounced and makes it easier to breathe at great depth and also gets around some of the problems with the bends which is a slightly different issue but yes higher you go less dense the atmosphere becomes less weight on you lower down you go or underwater the greater the pressure because of the greater mass of, of molecules above you.
taking your questions to Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. Keep those coming in. Let's go to one or two voice notes. Now, Johannes on 072-567-1567. Hi there. Good morning, doctor. Um, something that puzzles me, when I wake up in the mornings, I blow my nose up till 10 times. I sound like an elephant trumpeting. Um, <laughs> most unladylike. Why is that? Not during the day, just in the mornings. I hope you have a good day, Anthea. What an interesting question. Well, the answer probably is that when we go to sleep, a number of things happen. Obviously, we are unconscious. But because we are asleep, we turn down all of the normal processes, which are responsible for making tears, making saliva and making mucus in the nose. So what we tend to produce tends to be a bit thicker and stickier overnight, both in our mouths, in our eyes and up our noses. And because you are not doing that sort of general clearing process of blowing your nose a bit or sniffing and swallowing snot, which would normally be happening during the day without you even realising it, there is more of a build-up at night and so when you get up in the morning things do tend to have become a bit claggy and stuck together and it does take a little while to dislodge things i think that's part of it another consideration is that also if you've been out and about during the day and picked up various pollens and dusts and things and they're stuck in your hair and then you're in one place in your bed at night when you roll around on your pillow your hair is transferring to your face and then up your respiratory passages all of the dust and stuff that you've picked up during the day and so there can be in some people an allergic response that tends to intensify overnight because of the other factors that I've mentioned less secretions to clean these things up and so you can produce a bit more mucus which means when you wake up in the morning you have to work a bit harder to get rid of it. The question here is Dr Chris bees and flies both are pollinators but flies have a bad reputation uh, which is more important in nature when it comes to, to pollinating? I know that the, the bee PR campaign is, is really, really active. Hmm. Yeah, there's a buzz about that one. The answer is that there are many things that pollinate plants. What plants care about is getting their pollen from one flower in one plant to an equivalent flower of an equivalently related plant because that's how fertilization occurs that's how they transfer their genetic material between plants and therefore have baby plants by producing seeds any a number of insects can do this although bees have the rep for for being important pollinators and indeed they are they actually account for only a fraction of the pollination that's going on for instance moths most people don't don't realize that moths fluttering around are really very efficient and very important pollinators particularly of nighttime species some plants do most of their reproduction at night and moths are responsible for that and we often don't realize so uh, the answer is that it comes down to whatever species you're talking about. Different flowers are optimised to attract different insects for different amounts of time in different ways to achieve their fertilisation process. So I, I think it's too simplistic to say what's the best pollinators because it really will come down to the species they're pollinating. And there are some plants that really do need big chunky things. For instance, tomato plants are buzz pollinators. You need big insects like big chunky bumblebees that can really jostle the flowers around to release the pollen. Other plants are much more delicate and some plants like some orchids will go to extraordinary lengths to make smells that make them smell like female insects to lure in an insect 
that thinks it's in for a good time and it turns up and fertilizes the flower, not another insect, um, but by being subverted. So I don't think it's as simple as saying, oh, bees the best. Bees are very important, but they're one of a number of very important species that do the very important job of pollinating plants. And in the process, they keep us all fed because were it not for the efforts of pollinators, we would manually have to pollinate many of the plants that we rely on to give us the food we eat. And it would mean that food was incredibly hard to produce and incredibly expensive. So be very grateful to and mindful of the insects that do this amazing amount of jobs and amazing amount of work for us and keep us all fed and watered. Let's go to a voice note now. 072-567-1567. Morning, Chris. With evolution, no one has, no one can actually, um, or has, has seen or identified um, specification, meaning species evolving to another species. Therefore, how can science be so adamant about the, uh, the, the, their proposal of macroevolution? Um, it, it doesn't make scientific sense um, and, and is illogical because there's no proof of it. Mike Clement. Thanks so much. Mike, Chris? Well, Mike, it's not strictly true that there isn't proof of this because, in fact, we can see uh, a num- in a number of very elegant examples this sort of evolution happening. And we can see it both in real time and we can also see it in the fossil record. The fossil record's obviously a little bit uh, harder because there are always gaps in any fossil record because uh, there's an imperfect record there because it's very dependent on you finding the right fossils at the right time in the right places filling in those gaps. But in terms of what we're seeing, there, there are some really elegant examples of, for example, fish species, which you can prove genetically are closely related and must have come from a common ancestor, and they have evolved side by side in the environment in which they're found but they've become two different species that are no longer fertile and this is called sympatric evolution and and we can see living examples of this happening in a number of lakes in the african continent for example so i think that that's that's a, a good example there's also of course and i mentioned this vaguely just now the genetic evidence and the evidence we have here is that the genetic code which is running in all of our cells in other words you have a series, a sequence of about 3 billion genetic letters long in your DNA in each of the cells in your body, or almost every cell in your body. And that genetic alphabet, if you take the genes out of your cells and put them into a bacterial cell, or put them into a yeast cell, or put them into a jellyfish, or put a jellyfish gene into a human cell, the same genetic code is running in all those different cell types. So if you ask the question, well, when did a human or a bee or a jellyfish, a bacterium or a yeast last share an ancestor? The answer is about three and a half, four billion years ago. And the fact that the same code is conserved across all of these different things, which are incredibly remotely related to each other, shows you, given the complexity of the genetic code, and the ubiquity of the genetic code that we must all have come from one ancestor that used the same genetic code because it's so unlikely that as to be vanishingly impossible that we uh, used the same code and arrived at that independently in all these different species argues that we have come from a common source and that common source has diversified and speciated and become a whole raft of different life forms on earth 
all of which are connected by running the same genetic code, but we've all become incredibly different over the four billion years or so that we've been evolving on Earth. Chris, this is a question that's quite interesting to me. It's, the person asks, can you describe multiple discovery? And, and just the way I understand it, uh, I, I use, for example, the example of Isaac Newton and a man called Gottfried Leibniz, who both can claim to have discovered calculus at the same time, but Isaac Newton was in the UK, he was locked in because of the plague. He didn't leave his house and house and Gottfried Leibniz was, was on, the, on the mainland Europe. But independently, they both claim to have discovered calculus. How does multiple discovery work? Well, I, I suppose the saying uh, great minds think alike has never been um, more, more appropriate under these circumstances, has it? When people turn their attention to trying to solve a problem, because most of our great discoveries and great leaps forward have been because people have been trying to solve a problem and had to develop a new tool of some description to solve that problem. Sometimes those tools are actually physically making a thing. Sometimes it's a mental concept. Sometimes it's mathematics. And in order to solve that challenge, you inevitably go down a path to reach a conclusion or a solution and our brains despite the fact we are there's you know nigh on eight billion of us all over the world we all share a huge very very close match in our dna and the way our bodies work and the way our brains are put together which means if you take a machine a brain that thinks in a certain way and apply it to solve a problem it's very likely that because birds of a feather flock together, we're going to think along similar lines when trying to solve these problems and come up with very similar solutions to the same problems because of the way we're built, the way we've evolved and the way we think. So unsurprisingly, if you've got two people trying to solve a similar problem and they've never spoken to each other, but they'll be influenced by education that was around at the time, influenced by knowledge that existed at the time and influenced by the problem that they want to solve and the way the tools they have available to solve it, unsurprisingly, half the time they're going to come up with solutions which might well be very similar. And it, it's the way science works, and it's what makes science very reassuring and reliable. It's the process of science that makes it incredibly reliable for people to trust. It makes it trustworthy because you have independent corroboration and reproducibility going on. And that actually is the central tenet of how we do science. We don't just rely on one person saying, I've done this and this is the answer. What people say is, I've done this, I think this is the answer. And then other people bring independent lines of evidence to corroborate that or they repeat the experiments independently or they test the experiments and the, and the predictions in other ways and arrive at similar conclusions giving us confidence that those conclusions, those hypotheses that were tested, were tested correctly, accurately, and the, and the correct conclusions are being drawn. So I would say, in fact, it, rather than uh, it being some kind of bad thing, I'd say that people arriving at the same solution, perhaps by a slightly different route, is a very reassuring thing. Hello, Dr. Smith. I'd like to know what happens, uh, how much we know about what happens in the brain during the process of hypnosis and uh, to what degree this might explain uh, religious and political fervor. It's Clive in Plumstead. Interesting question. Chris, have you ever been hypnotized? Uh, yeah, it didn't work. Um, I think the reason it didn't work is that, on me at least, is that you have to be willing to relax very deeply and um, transport yourself into a happy place where you are 
completely zoned out from all of the other distractions that are going on around you. And when someone tried to do this on me, I was far too obsessed with trying to analyse what they were doing and why they were doing it, how they were doing it, and how it might be working, what effects it might be having on me, to properly cooperate. So I was a non-starter, I was a no-hoper. So um, they basically threw me out of their, their experiment. Um, <laughs> you spoiled the show. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, I did. they just chucked me off the stage because it, uh, it was a stage hypnotist who was doing that. I think he realised that it's just not going to happen. <laughs> and they threw me out. Um, but people have done proper objective scientific work on this and they've put people into scanners, for example. Very difficult to do this because if you've ever been in an MRI scanner, which I have a few times now... Um, you you know that it's like being put in an oil drum with someone hammering on the side of it continuously. And it's very hard to put yourself into a happy, relaxed, completely mentally zoned out state, concentrating only on what a person's saying to you when you're in that sort of environment. So these experiments are hard to do. Therefore, the conclusions um, that you can draw from them are challenging uh, to, to interpret. Uh, but what people are finding is that there, there are networks of brain centers which tend to be more activated more of the time when you get people to go into a hypnotic state or, or meditate, go into a trance. And so that there does appear to be a, a configurational pattern of, of brain activity, which probably reflects a relaxed state where you are not being distracted by or concentrating on particular tasks. You're allowing your, your mind to wander and be directed a bit. Um, but hypnosis is not a magic thing. It's not something that where someone magically takes control of your attention, magically takes control of your brain and gets you to do things that you would never normally want to do or uh, to volunteer information that you wouldn't normally want to volunteer. It doesn't work like that. And, and that's really just stage performances. It, it doesn't mm. occur like that. And um, anyone who tries to tell you otherwise is, is, is deceiving you. What it can do, though, is help people to focus on something uh, to relax and consider things in a way that enables them to perhaps regard a particular thing from a different perspective and perhaps uh, m maybe get some kind of mental handle on something they've been grappling with without the distraction of, of other things clouding their judgment. It can help with that, but this is not some magician's thing where all of a sudden your, your brain is put under the control of another person. It just doesn't work like that, and, um, and nor would it ever. Well, Chris, in, in an hour's time, I'm, I'm going to be strapping into a polygraph test that we're going to be doing live on air for our Lester Tester feature. And there's been a question I've been wondering, and it comes from a, a line in the series Seinfeld. George Costanza tells Jerry, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. And if someone mm -hmm. believes a lie, would they pass a polygraph test? Well, the way that a polygraph works it's also called your galvanic skin response is that you are looking at the change in the conductivity of the skin surface and conductivity is how much electricity can pass across the skin surface and the chief determinant of that is how much salty fluid there is what salty fluid is sweat what makes you sweat? Well, what makes you sweat is activation of your sympathetic nervous system. What's that? It's part of the automatic branch of your nervous system that, that does things unconsciously. And you have two branches to your automatic nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And when you are preparing for fight or flight, so in other words, you've got to fight and defend yourself or run away very quickly from a threat then you activate your sympathetic nervous system. So stressful situations turn in your sympathetic nerves. Those also drive 
sweat glands. So if you put someone in an intensely stressful situation, such as lying, being forced to invent things quickly, uh, defend themselves, be very nervous, those sorts of things will cause sweating. This will make your skin more conductive and you will see a change in the galvanic skin response in that way. And so really it's a, it's a very rough measure. It's easy to thwart and, and is not judged to be reliable most of the time. We're just going to end up with some of some, some of the responses from people who I assume are engineers giving us a response on the Wankel rotary engine. Good morning, uh, Chris Smith. We were engine rebuilders in the 70s, and the reason why the Wankel never did well, the seals didn't last. It needed a lot, lot of compression because its revolutions were very high. Anyway, that was my take, and that was what the Mazda company was telling us. We have to replace the seals every sort of twenty or 30,000. A little bit of background to the Wankel engine. And there we have the response on what happened to the Wankel rotary engine, Chris. Yeah, um, that was my understanding, that uh, it, it was not economical to keep repairing and to maintain these engines, and they hadn't been optimised. Maybe with a bit more development, a bit more research, and some optimization, they would be a more viable prospect today. But because we're on on the cusp of trying to get rid of internal combustion and en- combustion engines, I think that really they they won't be coming back. I think we'll we've got very well optimized engines that work the way that they do, and they'll slowly be toddling off the planet in favour of electric cars mainly and diesel engines. I think that's the way it's going to be in future: diesel plus electric. So um, probably we won't see a return to the days of Wankel rotary engines anytime soon. Dr. Chris Smith, he joins us again next Friday. Again, get your questions in early. Call us. At 9.30, we'll put you on air so you can get ahead of that queue and ask your scientific questions to Dr. Chris Smith. But he's back with us next week. This message comes from PagerDuty. In a world of digital everything, teams need PagerDuty, a digital operations management platform that helps you stay on top of urgent mission-critical work and keep digital services always on. Learn more at pagerduty.com.